Today on Cross Defense, we discuss amillennialism, and we put the burden of proof back where it belongs on all the millennialists. We're going to read Revelation 20, and then we're going to discuss 10 considerations for the thoughtful Christian, the student of the text who wants to read it rightly and wants to consider it rightly. Reverend Grabner is our dead theologian guiding us through our conversation again for a second week in a row. And uh, by the end of the show, we'll let the LCMS theologians from 1989 speak up. At least I'll give you a link to where they can speak up and show us how we can uh, read the Bible as the Bible wants to be read according to the historic hermeneutical principles and exegete the text, not eisegete it, in a time, I suggest it, is that a word? In a time when so many want to do that. So we're looking at Revelation 20 and how the thousand years are not a literal thousand years. Let's get into it. Welcome, friend, across the fence. This is the show that aims to equip the mind, excite the imagination, and comfort the soul, and aims to do all of that with God's Word. I'm your host, Reverend Tyrell Bramwell. I'm the pastor of St. Mark Lutheran Church in Ferndale, California, where, get this, get this, friend, God's people out here don't need John Nelson Darby's fanciful fiction to make the Bible interesting. No, no, sir. We find God's truth rich, deep, and substantive, just the way he gave it to us. No end times charts needed, none at all. If during the show you want to send us your questions, your comments, your bits of biblical brilliance, well, I encourage you to do so by going to stmarksferndale.com slash contact. That's S-T-M-A-R-K-S, ferndale.com slash contact. You can also leave us a review and a five-star rating of the show on your podcast platform of choice, how you like to listen to this show. We truly appreciate your help. You're partnering with us, our mission of equipping minds, exciting imaginations, and comforting souls in Christ. Thank you for helping us with this goal. We truly can't do it without you. You know, if you might be so inclined, you can even do a little uh, guerrilla, old-fashioned, grassroots style of support and just use your lips to tell somebody about cross-defense. That's another way. Not everything has to happen online. Just tell your friend at church, getting a cup of coffee after church in the fellowship hall, say, hey, have you heard about cross-defense? We'd appreciate that too. Don't want to leave you offline people out of the loop. We appreciate you as well. Last week, we took up two questions related to the Jews, and one of them revealed that Scripture does not, does not, teach that Israel will be restored as a nation prior to the Lord's return. It doesn't. We turn to Reverend Theodore Grabner, who showed us from Scripture that all the prophecies about Israel point to Christ and his church. It's not about a replacement theology, but the clearly identifiable remnant theology we find in the Old and New Testaments all throughout, Israel is Israel. It's a matter of understanding what that definition is. Salvation, after all, truly comes through faith alone, in Christ alone, for all people. Go figure. It's not about genetics. No, it's about faith. Now, as we answered that question, which was a great question, by the way, we touched on Kiliasm, which the cool kids today like to call millennialism. Today, we're diving into the millennium question 
but not as you might expect. Not, not from a defensive position, but with the right understanding that the Bible does not teach a literal millennium. Whether they're pre- or post-mill, the theologians who read Scripture from a Darbian or a even Russellite perspective will have to show, they will have to show, according to historic hermeneutical principles, I can use fancy words, I promise, according to historic hermeneutical principles, they will have to show how they're not engaging in eisegesis. Because amillennialism is often treated as the newer stance on the block when it comes to this end times discussion. Amillennialism, amillennialism, which has been around since the beginning, which is the OG doctrine, is often treated as it's the one who has to prove that it deserves to be in the discussion. Uh Uh-uh, no sir. It's the pre and post mill. It's the millennium people at all who need to prove from an exegetical, historic, hermeneutical position that their reading of the text is accurate. Ours stands the test of time and is biblically provable, as we will see. And so, with that, our Bibles are now open to Revelation 20. If they weren't, well, they are now. Get there, my friend. You can pause this if you listen to it after the fact, and you can get there and read along with me. Are you ready? See, all your friends... All of their distinctions between pre and, and post-millennialism and all the sub-variations, the, the dispensational premillennialism, and all the different stuff, all of these, these different millennial positions, they, they fit into one erroneous category. They all teach a thousand-year reign of Christ, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. And because of this, we're able to throw all of them into the trash can at once with one sweeping move on the charge that their core agreement, the literal millennium, is wrong. Don't have to deal with any of the other variances in their positions. We look at the millennium, the literal thousand years, and we can chuck them all away. Because all their distinctions are pointless. All the other ones are pointless because their initial premise is non-biblical. Millennialists believe that there will be more than one judgment. But there's... There's much confusion among them about the number of final judgments, for instance. Some millennialists and teachers, at least, if not the adherents, teach that there's three separate and specific judgments. The judgment of the world, the judgment of the resurrected redeemed, the Christians, and then the judgment of the unredeemed, the non-Christians. Others, well, they tally up four judgments when they start to do their end times math and they get the the judgment at the judgment seat. They get the judgment of the tribulation. The third one is the judgment of nations and fourth is the judgment at the great white throne. And well, millennialism has taken the simple doctrine as we see all of that doctrine that Christ will return at the end of time to judge the living and the dead. It's taken this simple teaching and it's turned it into a work of man, muddling it all up in order to hold on to an erroneous literal reading of Revelation 20. And I would suggest, perhaps ungraciously, I don't know, to sell books and to make movies and to do all these things that we see happening and that have been happening since the rise of these modern versions of this this ancient false 
teaching. So, did I give you enough time? <laughs> when I talk like that after telling you to open your Bibles, it's usually because I want to give you time to get there. It's an old Bible study trick I have. So, did I give you enough time to get your Bibles open to Revelation 20? Great, let's get into it. Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to a bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those of whom the authority of the judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And... They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Oh, good stuff, yeah? Reverend Theodore Grabner, the same theologian we learned from last week, offers a list of 10 points that the Christian student of Scripture should note when reading Revelation 20. But first, let me ask you, why should we even give Theodore Grabner, Reverend Grabner, any credence at all? Why, why listen to him? What makes this dead theologian a helpful resource for us as we discuss a millennialism. Well, one reason that I appreciate him for 
is, like I said last week, he's a great bridge theologian. I just made that term up, I think. He's a bridge theologian. And here's what I mean by that. He lived from 1876 all the way to 1950. And that means anyone who is 73 years old or older today was born or was alive in the same year that Reverend Theodore Grabner died. Not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. So now let's consider the founder of dispensational premillennialism, John Nelson Darby of England's Plymouth Brethren Movement. He lived from 1800 to 1882. So Grabner was, what, six years old when Darby died? He grew up when dispensationalism had barely been invented as a reaction to the Church of England's post-millennialist view. Now, Darby's lies gained popularity in the United States because of, as you may know, the Schofield Reference Bible. And that wasn't published until 1909. So how old was Reverend Grabner in 1909, you might ask? Well, 33. Right in the prime of his, his ministry, of his adult life. Old enough to be working and teaching. So while we think of millennialist teachers, such as Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and Kenneth Copeland and the Left Behind guys, Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins, these sort of guys, name a few, while we think of them, they weren't even around when Grabner rejected dispensational premillennialism, when he was fighting the good fight of faith against the heresy that emerged when Christians still viewed it as a heresy. We don't do that anymore. So many Christians just take this in as normal. So much so where amillennialism now is seen as the, the outsider because we don't have the, the popular guys. We don't have the bestsellers. We're not, we're not producing content that is in a way that appeals to our, our marketing and our very secular worldly st strategies. We're not, as, we're not as cool as the cool kids. Consider this quote. This is from Grabner. In recent years, this was back in 1918, in recent years, millennial writers have spoken with increasing boldness of their heresy as fundamental teaching. As the official, genuine, historical position of the Christian church, when as a matter of fact, and that's, let's not even use that as a phrase, a matter of fact kind of becomes a, uh, a turn of phrase, but what does that statement say? It's a matter, an issue, that is based on fact. As a matter of fact, if we accept the Anabaptist, whom they like to disown, until 150 years ago, very few espoused chiliasm in the Protestant bodies. While dispensationalism, what's well, hardly even 100 years old? Think of it this way. Reverend Grabner predates and or is a contemporary theologian of all, all American Pentecostalism, which makes up a big swath of evangelical Christians today, right? When the founders of these denominations that are so prevalent today in America were swirling around, the founders swirling around the same millennial toilet bowl, there were faithful pastors such as Theodore Grabner writing works defending the traditional Christian eschatology when the Christians of old still held to it as the traditional Christian eschatology. 
Grabner was on the scene when the dispensationalists showed up. He was 30 years old when Charles Parham's disciples brought his bad theology to the American mind with the Azusa Street revivals, Pentecostalism. He was among those who held the line of orthodoxy as the Christian horizon was darkened by the errors of the mid-19th century and early 20th century false teachings. All right, so I didn't plan on taking that much time to tell you about Theodore Grabner and why we should give him the credence of listening to him as a, as a teacher, uh, what did I call him, a bridge theologian, but it, okay, it took me a little while. So let's take our first break now. We'll come back and we'll get right back into our discussion of amillennialism. Thanks for tuning in to Cross Defense. Hello, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, host of Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning at 11 a.m., join me and a guest pastor as we explore God's Word, which strengthens our faith and guides our lives. You can listen over the air, online at kfuo.org, or through your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Thy Strong Word, only from KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Well, that took a little longer than I thought, a little excursion into Theodore Grabner and in general why we should listen to dead theologians, especially those of the, the orthodox, historic, faithful sort. And we learned a little bit about Pentecostalism there at the end as well. So on to the 10 points to consider when reading Revelation 20. Number one, dear Christian, there is no mention here in this text of any restoration of the Jewish race and their general conversion to Christianity. Nothing, just as we talked about last week. You don't find it here in Revelation 20, do you? No. If there is such an intimate connection between Israel's restoration and the millennium, as all the millennialists want to insist, if there's such a connection, then why is there not even a hint of a Jewish restoration in this chapter? Kind of an odd question or odd observation, yeah? Wouldn't you expect to find the Jewish restoration at least hinted at in this most pivotal passage about the millennium? And speaking of that, number two, this is the only passage in Scripture that applies the term 1,000 years to the duration of the Messianic kingdom. Only place you find it in Scripture. Three, all the elements of the millennialist teachings, they're absent from this chapter. You don't find them in this verse, in this pericope, in this text. We don't find a description of the millennium as a period when, when all wars will cease on earth. We don't find that here in this text. We don't find it, uh, the description of it as a time when, when there'll be a universal reign of the golden rule among men where everyone will, will be treating others as they want to be treated sort of a thing. We don't find a time when the kingdom of God will extend over all the earth mentioned here. None of it is mentioned in this text. And let's not overlook that this is the only pericope in the entire Bible that speaks of a thousand-year rule of Christ, as mentioned above, and none of the details that the millennialists tell us 
are to occur, occur during that thousand-year period are mentioned. That's peculiar, isn't it? The burden of proof squarely rests upon the millennialists. They want to connect all these other passages that they, they draw these, these details from and they want to, they want to throw them up on, here onto this Revelation 20 text when the Revelation 20 text doesn't give us any indication that, that they connect, that that's what's going on. Hmm. If they want us to accept that the Bible passages that they are constantly quoting, that they refer to Revelation 20, then the millennialists are going to actually have to show us exegetically that that's the case. According, like I said already, according to the historic hermeneutical principles that the church has always employed. If they can't do that, well, then millennialism doesn't hold water. Number four, this chapter of Revelation uses elaborate imagery. We should note that. It mentions an angel having a key and a chain in his hand. We might want to ask, was this a real material chain made up of heavy iron links or something? Is it the kind of chain that I can go and buy at my hardware store? There is mention also of a dragon. Was this a real animal with claws and a tail, the kind that answers in Genesis would tell us are dinosaurs? Is this a real creature? which I tend to agree with, by the way, which the angel then cast into a real pit dug somewhere on the earth. Is that how we're supposed to read this? Was this a real material seal that we see in this text that was fashioned to the lid, a real lid of this real pit? Now, every reader, I would think, will admit that the key, the chain, the seal, they all symbolize power and authority. We all see that the dragon is Satan, as it says, and the pit is hell. So how then are we reading these details? How would you describe the way we're reading these details if we see that the dragon relates to Satan and the pit is a picture of hell? And the seal and the chain and the key, these are symbols of authority. What are, what are we doing here? We're reading it figuratively. Yeah? Figuratively. That's how they're being used. So then, the next question is, or the statement is, the millennialists then need to prove why it's appropriate, why it's consistent to shift all of a sudden in the text as we're interpreting this one particular pericope to shift to a literal interpretation of the 1,000 years. Why shouldn't the 1,000 years, this one descriptive element in the text, why shouldn't it be taken like all the others, the other descriptive elements? And while we're on this fourth point, the fact can't be avoided that the reference to the thousand years isn't casual. It's repeated with a special emphasis. Six times, right? Six times. So what's the explanation to that? Well, if Revelation were a book in which numbers were used in their normal sense, as in ordinary prose, 
we would undoubtedly have a six times repeated expression, which definitely refers to a period of, say, 10 centuries, a thousand literal years. But numbers in Revelation are not used in their normal sense, are they? No, sir. No, they're not. They're used symbolically. So it appears that he who abandons this symbolic usage, this symbolic way of, of reading Revelation, increasingly ignores not only the language, but the tone and the style of the apocalypse, of this apocalyptic literature. Why? For the sake of an idea that is in conflict with it. That's, that's a really disconcerting thought, isn't it? I think so. Number five, no matter whether you believe that a thousand years in this passage means 1,000 years of 365 days each, no matter whether you believe that or you accept these words to signify a long period of time, the chapter may be interpreted in harmony with other passages of Scripture which foretell the reign of Christ in the Christian church from Pentecost to the end of all things. I think you might find this little note from Reverend Grabner interesting. Here's what he says. Our Lutheran theologians have always distinguished between chiliasm of the crass, the moderate, and the subtle kind. The coarse or crass chiliasm is the doctrine of some heretics of the early church who taught a millennium of carnal delights. Much of modern dispensationalism is not far removed from this. The moderate kind is the teaching generally accepted by millennialists with the visible reign of Christ, a twofold resurrection, etc. Also, this kind of chiliasm, Orthodox Lutherans have always regarded as heretical, that is, as a church divisive error. The subtle kind is that which assumes an age of ideal peace and prosperity for the church in the latter days, but teaches no physical rule of Christ as an interval between two resurrections. Achilleasm of this kind we call erroneous and false, but since it does not touch any fundamental doctrine of the faith, we don't call it heretical. And this, this applies especially if it's set forth more in the manner of a theological problem without demanding assent thereto. So quoting another Lutheran theologian, Grabner records that we understand that the millennium is now in progress. It dates from the consummation of the Jewish age. It is a round, definite number used symbolically for an indefinite eon, a period. It's the period of the messianic reign. Since the dawn of Christianity, the powers of darkness have been repressed. Satan has been chained Yet there is nothing in the scriptures to warrant the idea that the entire period is to be one of uniform and unclouded blessedness and glory as the millennialists teach. So note that we talk about an amillennialist view, a non-thousand-year view, but really that's the non-literal thousand-year view. We are living in the millennium right now is another way of saying that. The millennium that isn't restrained to just a strict thousand years, but it understands thousand years as a a, a numerical term that is for completeness, 
the entire church age, the entire New, New Testament era, from the ascension of Christ or Pentecost all the way up to the Lord's final return, his, his second coming. So, in that way, you could talk about amillennialists as, uh, let's say, current, symbolic millennialists. I don't know what we'd want to call us. Let's just stick with what we've always been called, amillennialists. But notice, our view is not that we live in some rosy, perfect world right now, and we know from our own experience we don't. In fact, that's the whole point. We're enduring to the end, and we shall conquer when we do. Let's move on to point number six that we want to note from this text. The passages from the Old Testament that are quoted as the descriptors, the, the descriptions of what will happen in the, the thousand years, as we already noted, they're not included in the Revelation 20 text. So the descriptors, the passages that give us the description, they, they either describe the blessedness of membership in the kingdom of God these Old Testament passages that in the in the Christian church, or they plainly refer to the bliss of the saints in heaven. Not a single one of these Old Testament passages, frequently quoted by the millennialist, from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, all the, the other Old Testament writings, none of them that they say refer to the millennium mentions a thousand years. I know I said that in a clumsy way, but that's the point. They're not mentioned in Revelation 20, the descriptors. But where you do find these descriptors in the Old Testament, you don't find the mention of a thousand years. So the opposite thing is happening. Why are we not finding a correlation between these, these ideas, between where the thousand years is mentioned and where supposedly the description of what's happening in those thousand years are mentioned, and yet the two never meet? Actually, this is a really good time to mention that outside of Revelation, there are only two other places where a thousand years is mentioned in all of the Bible. We find it, um, and, oh, actually, I also mentioned that never in those two other places is it in reference to uh, the reign of any kind. It's not talking about a, a thousand year reign of the Christ or of anyone. Psalm 94 is one of them, and 2 Peter 3.8 is another. Psalm 94 says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And in a corresponding fashion, 2 Peter 3.8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Both of these passages deal with the timelessness of God. And they support a non-literal interpretation of Revelation's 1,000 years, yeah? But neither of them mention anything about a reign of a 1,000 years. But those are the only other two passages in Scripture that bring up a 1,000 years. Kind of interesting. Number seven, when looking at Revelation 20, when Christ was asked by his disciples to describe the last world age, what's going on in these end times, so they might know when to expect his coming, he didn't, in his reply, so much as hint at a reign in glory on earth before his final coming to judgment. So he's, he's asked you know, straight up what to expect 
and didn't even allude to the idea of a thousand-year interval period. Isn't that also odd? Now, on the contrary, what he says is that when he returns, the end is at hand. When I come back, there it is, boys. It's pretty straightforward. We're at the end. Matthew 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? (laughs) What are we to look for? Now let me ask you, dear saints, my friends, let me ask you about what he says next. In terms of millennialism as as a school of of theology versus amillennialism. Which one do you think is used to alarm people? And which one proclaims peace? Which one is busy discussing where Jesus will be and and when he will appear, saying, here he is and there he is and all that kind of stuff? And which one throws all of that off and keeps the cross and the empty tomb in focus, trusting that it will be obvious when the Lord returns? Consider these questions as we read Jesus' answer to the disciples in Matthew 24, 4. And Jesus answered them, saying, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Which camp which school of thought alarms people with all the the next cool best-selling books and movies and gets people worried about the end and their salvation and which one says these things must take place we're looking at the cross we're looking at jesus and his promise and on the entire council of scripture that says Fear not. Let's take our second break. When we come back, we'll continue with our look at Revelation 20 today and how it's the millennialists of any camp that have to prove that their view is right as we hold to the historic biblical position of amillennialism. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Amillennialism does not, does not cause alarm, but brings comfort. Graebner dishes out some goodness from another dead theologian, Abraham Kuyper. Kuyper? Kuyper? I don't know how these guys say their names. In his commentary on Revelation, Kuyper says, Christ's teaching with respect to Matthew 24 and other parts of the Gospels contain nothing that even remotely suggests any interval of a thousand years but directly contradicts it. One does not tally 
with the other. One doesn't compute, is how we'd say it today. In the Gospels and in the uh, apocalyptical writings, the parousia, Christ's second coming, is not presented as the succession of a series of events of long duration, but as a drastic, immediate action, which is immediately connected with the resurrection of all the dead. That's how he presents it, with the last judgment, with the destruction of this world, and with the rise of a new earth under a new heaven. It's inconceivable, Kuiper says, therefore, that between the parousia of Christ, his second coming, and the consummation, the culmination, the completeness of the world, there would again ensue so tremendous an interval of a thousand years. It is, in fact, he says, incomprehensible that when the end arrives and the parousia of Christ is in process of coming to pass, this all-decisive, so-important action would suddenly be paused. Pause, and the consummation of the world would be deferred, put on delay, not for a brief moment, not for a short, quick run to the kitchen to get a Mountain Dew before you keep playing the game, but a thousand years, at the end of which literally nothing would have happened, and nothing would have been accomplished. <laughs> to justify this uncommonly long delay. Good point. What's, what's the point of the thousand years? I'm sure millennialists listening to this might have an answer. They might have some sort of thought that they've been able to infuse into their theology over the course of the last hundred and so years, 150, 200 years. But, but really, why delay? And all of that is really a mute point anyway because it contradicts what we read in Matthew 24. On to point eight, we're taught that Judgment Day, speaking of no delay in between, we're taught that Judgment Day will come as a thief in the night, will come like lightning, these kind of things, right? The, the, the texts that tell us it's going to happen fast and suddenly and without anticipation, we're told that no one but God knows when it will come. Mark 13, 32, yeah? So if a millennium precedes it, then the entire Christian world, see if you can track with me here, it's pretty complicated, I know, but if a millennium, a thousand years, precedes this unknown date of when it will happen, then the entire Christian world would know 1,000 years in advance when our Lord will come to judgment. Wait a minute. We'll be able to tally when the Lord's coming back at the end. Second Peter 3.10 makes it pretty clear that upon the thief-like coming of the Lord, the earth will be destroyed. Hence, there'll be no place for a millennium to happen afterward. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed Hold on a second. Premillennialism says we can mark on our calendars when the, when the thousand-year reigns begins and we'll know exactly when the Lord's coming, what day he'll come a thousand years later. And postmillennialism says that there'll be a millennium after he comes, but both of those don't jive with what Peter writes, <laughs> what we just heard. There won't be a place for a millennium to, to happen after the Lord's return. Well, see, so much for millennialism. I guess we could have just went right here to the this Peter passage, 
and we'd be able to debunk the whole thing. Second Peter 3.10 solves it. Okay, go home. We're done. <laughs> On to number nine. The age preceding the end of all things. It's described by our Lord and by his apostles as an age abounding in wickedness. An age abounding in unbelief and false doctrine, false prophets, leading people astray, much sorrow and affliction. Wickedness mounting steadily until, if it were possible, even the elect would be lost. Isn't this how it's described? Such are the marks of the last end times, the last world age. This is an absolute contrast to the picture painted by millennialism. The description which our Lord gives of the latter days leaves no time for a thousand years. Wickedness abounds until he comes. And then there is the end. That's the simple, straightforward, faithful, historical, hermeneutically consistent exegesis of the text. Where are we squeezing in the thousand years? If we hear over and over again that the time leading up to the Lord's return is filled with wickedness, a steady increase, so much so where even the elect would be lost if such a thing could happen. Doesn't really seem to be room for premillennialism, and we've already established there's not going to be anywhere for postmillennialism to, to occur, so hmm. on to point number 10. There will not be an interval of 1,000 years between the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the wicked. All will be raised on the last day of the world. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 to 24 is helpful. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 1 John 5, 28-29 is also helpful. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And how about John 6, 39 and 40? And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If these words represent two resurrections, as the millennialists teach, then a day that is a thousand years before the end of time would be, have to be called the last day. If we're going to have two separate resurrections, that would be an interpretation that defies all the laws of logic and completely ignores what we just read with John 6, 39 and 40. If the believers are raised a thousand years before the end of the world, they will not be raised on the last day. They'll be raised on a day a thousand years before. On the strength of scripture passages like these, the Christian church in all of its confessional writings consistently teaches one resurrection, not two. And so, the Lutheran confessions distinctly reject millennialism as false doctrine. Augsburg Confession, Article 17, it says clearly, it is also taught that our Lord Jesus Christ will return on the last day to judge 
to raise all the dead, to give eternal life and eternal joy to those who believe and are elect, but to condemn the ungodly and the devils to hell and eternal punishment. Rejected, therefore, are the Anabaptists, who teach that the devils and the condemned human beings, they will suffer eternal torture and torment. Likewise, rejected are some Jewish teachings which have also appeared in the present day that before the resurrection of the dead, saints and righteous people alone will possess a secular kingdom and will annihilate all the ungodly. That's chiliasm. Millennialism. This confession wasn't disputed by the Roman Catholics, by the way, during the Reformation. As we read in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 17, the opponents accept Article 17 without qualification. In it, we confess that Christ will appear at the consummation of the world and will raise up all the dead, giving eternal life and eternal joys to the godly, but condemning the ungodly to endless torment with the devil. The ancient amillennial view Biblical as it is, wasn't something that needed to be put aright during the time of the Reformation. Movements within the Radical Reformation that emerged in the, in the wake of the Gospel Reformation introduced repristinated Jewish ideas. Thanks, Anabaptists. Yes, millennialism is ancient because Judaism is ancient, but it isn't orthodox. Those two things aren't equals. It's part of a, a Christ-denying system of belief even though it's an old one. It can and has been said that all present-day millennial views are just variations of the Jewish opinions condemned by our Lutheran forefathers during the Reformation. Amillennialism, which understands the thousand years of Revelation chapter 20 figuratively, because that's how the text reveals itself, in keeping with the context of Revelation and in light of the rest of the hermeneutic principles that keep biblical interpretation consistent, amillennialism is the ancient Christian perspective that sees clearly from the Bible that looking for an earthly kingdom is the error of the Jews all the way up to Jesus' disciples who looked for an earthly king to rule an earthly kingdom of Israel, giving those, those Gentile, those Roman imperialist pigs their comeuppance. Now, Lord, now will you restore the kingdom of Israel? This was the question, wasn't it? They were looking at the wrong kind of Messiah, the wrong kind of king, not one who, who rides in like a prince on a white horse with a sword in hand and throws off the shackles of, of another king, but one who's humble and rides in on a donkey and gets crucified. As the Lord says, if his kingdom was of this earth, well, then his followers would be taking up the sword. But they weren't because he comes to bring a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly one. Millennialism in its various forms, is indeed ancient, as ancient as Judaism, true. And it's just as false as that Christ-denying religion. R.C.H. Linsky, you might know of him, he writes that the old Jewish dream was that the Jews would eventually dominate and thus bless the world of nations with their benevolence. The Messiah for whom they looked was the one who would lift them to this height and would usher in this era of Jewish supremacy. Jesus was the opposite of such a Messiah, and the Jews crucified him and have rejected him ever since. 
And Linsky adds that Jesus couldn't use the title Messiah during his earthly ministry among the Jews because of this, this meaning which the Jews had attached to the term Messiah. And so he used the term son of man, to which no such national, political, or earthly notions could be attached. And they still missed the point and looked for Jesus to be an earthly king. Linsky continues and says this Jewish opinion put on Christian garb with a variety of, of Christian-like ornamentations in the teachings of certain post-apostolic fathers and their successors, to whom many present millennialists, even to this day, still point to help prove the truth of their own chiliasm. He says, they, we, we have these guys, even in our own day, and we see this. When you watch these guys on YouTube, they'll, you know, they'll refer to certain church fathers as their, as their backup for why they hold to this view. Just like we find with the Roman Catholics who, who point to their councils and their, their popes and, and all of their, their man-made teachings. No, we go to Scripture. Why I wanted to make a big point about pointing out that Grabner, why we were going to Grabner is because he was so close to the, the invention of dispensationalism, the rise of the modern version of millennialism. It's not because we take Grabner's word for it. Grabner's not our backup. He just happens to be able to get us through our own forest so we can see the trees on the other side and deal with them truthfully and honestly. But we all, as faithful Christians, ought to be able to go to Scripture as we have and look at the Bible verses and, and look at what is going on in this text and say, no, that doesn't make any sense. Apart from whatever church father says whatever thing. So, we're about out of time. But to round out today's show, I want to give you the write-up of what we find in the September 1989 document called The End Times, A Study on Eschatology and Millennialism. I wanted to be able to, to read some of this to you today, but we're running too, you know, time's running out too fast. So what I want to do is I'm going to include a link to this document. It's a PDF. It's on our webpage. It's in the show notes below. You can find it. And I want you to, to note there's a certain section in there about Revelation 20. There's also a certain section in there about Romans 11. But there's, there's, there's great material all the way through. It deals with all the different millennial views and amillennialism. To give it a look, it's not a long document. You'll find it's very helpful, very comprehensive, very, lots of references in there. If you've been around the Lutheran conversation of millennialism before in, in our circles, then you've probably no doubt come across this document before. It's a CTCR document. It's uh, put out by the LCMS. We had LCMS theologians working on it in 1989 and leading up to 1989, so we could make a, a very faithful, thoughtful uh, statement on our position of amillennialism. But also, this is the kind of material that would make for a good Bible study. If it's been a while since your church has studied millennialism or in all of its forms or amillennialism, properly speaking, then uh, maybe you want to give it a read as a group in a, in a study and let Scripture tell you what Scripture is revealing to you and not what John Nelson Darby or, or the Jehovah Witnesses or any of these other guys are wanting you to read into the text. No, that's not how we do it. We let the Bible tell us and we read it according to those same historic hermeneutical principles that the church has always used, exegeting the text and not eisegeting it. With that, guys, I'm out of time, so thank you very much for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next week. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. 
Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.